as we finished that last chorus, um, I was looking around because I had an occasion to stand up and get ready to come up here. And I saw on a whole lot of people's faces that you meant what you were singing. There was a whole lot of people who were singing, it is well with my soul. And as, as I looked at that song and, uh, and I thought it through, that's easy to say, like he says in that first stanza, when we're blessed and things are going well. And I think that's where most of us probably are right now. In this room, I think if I had to say, raise your hand if you feel like things are great for you right now, I'd probably see a lot of hands go up. But when it gets to be challenging is when we're buffeted and things aren't great. And it's my prayer for you all and for all of us and for our brothers and sisters around the world, all believers, that we can truly mean those words even when things are difficult. Because you know what? It is well with your soul if you are trusting Christ for your salvation. Difficult times are going to come, but it is well with your soul. And that was an aside. So please join me in praying this morning. Lord God, we just come before you this morning. And Lord, we adore you as a God of mercy. We thank you, Lord, that even though we sin against you, as repentant sinners, you extend your mercy to us. You extend your forgiveness to us. And Lord, we are so grateful and we adore you for that. Lord, we got, God, we adore you because you're a God of provision. You constantly provide what we need from day to day. Lord, we live well here. We live well because you have blessed us well here. And we thank you for that so much. We adore you, Lord, for you are a God of wisdom and a God of power. And we can see that, Lord, in the things we create, great and small. We thank you, Lord, that you hold the whole world in your hand and are so sovereign over all things. Lord God, we confess that we often fail you. We don't come anywhere near where we should be. We fail every single day to be the men and women that you've called us to be. But again, we are grateful, Lord. We are grateful for the forgiveness that you extend to us. We humbly seek you, Father. We seek your will. We humbly come before you, Lord, repentant of our sins. Thanking you, knowing you, Lord, that according to your word, you will forgive us. And we are grateful for that. Lord, we give you thanks for the wonderful things you do in our lives. Lord, this weekend, as we all got to sit around as families and enjoy the bounty you've blessed us with, I pray that each of us were thanking you, Lord. As our nation celebrated this holiday today, there are a lot of people who wouldn't even know who they were saying thank you to. But Lord, we do, and we are grateful for that. We thank you for the provision that you've given us. And Lord, we ask that you might continue to work in mighty ways, as you have in the life of young Christopher. Lord, we thank you for the things you've done in Christopher Hansen's life. I thank you for the witness that his parents have been, constantly giving you glory as you've seen them through this challenging time. Lord, we don't know what you've done in their lives. We don't know the peace you've given them because we haven't experienced it with them. Lord, but we do know that you've done a mighty work and we thank you every day that Christopher gets to be with us. And we look forward, Lord, to the day that he'll be here with us. 
And Lord, as we prepare to come together this morning around your word, I pray that you will use this time, Lord, for your glory. May your word be spread not only in this place, but in churches around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to tell you guys a little about myself, something you may not know. My mother was one of ten siblings. That was back in the day, right, when they just kept having babies, right? I wish I had ten, but that's a whole different story. But my mom was one of ten. And so when I was growing up, the oldest five of my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, lived with their families in Missouri. And the younger five, of which my mom was one, lived in Texas with all their families. And we had like a total of 17 cousins among us. And my grandparents did a great job of instilling in my mother and her siblings the importance of family. A couple of times a year, we'd all get together. Every now and then, all of the cousins, everybody from both states would come together. And it was a great time. And we would have those family reunions. They were called the Reichert family reunions because that was my grandparents. You know, that was my mother's maiden name. But we used to have a lot of fun, right? And if you've been to Texas or driven through it, you know that just because a group of people lives in the same state doesn't mean it's a short drive to get together, right? Not necessarily. And when I was growing up, and still today, I suffered from extreme motion sickness. I hated to get in the car. I hated to drive more than about 20 minutes. Because if we had to drive more than that, we had to make a stop because Jason was not going to feel well. It was annoying for everybody else. It was painful for me. That's just how it went, right? But you know what? When we had family reunions, I didn't mind. I actually looked forward to about the three-hour drive to my uncle's farm where we were going to all get together and spend time together. And you know why? Because I had a cousin named David. And I loved my cousin David. He and I were the same age. We did a lot of the same things together, right? We each had brothers that we didn't appreciate as we should have. We were both fairly athletic, right? So we always had competition between the two of us. If we played sports in the family reunion, it was always David's one captain, Jason's another captain. Right? That's just kind of how it went. I felt like I was a big man on campus when we get together, so that made me feel good. But generally, I just liked being with him. Whether we were eating, or whether we were exaggerating our adventures since the last time we got together. Whatever we were doing, I loved getting together with my cousin David. It was a highlight for me. And as a result, I didn't mind that long drive because I looked forward to seeing him with anticipation. And, in, and let me ask you guys this. Does anybody else here have anybody that was like that in your life that you just really loved to get together with? You anticipated getting together with them, right? Other than your spouse, because I know that's applicable all the time for all the married people, right? That's just kind of goes without saying. But in today's message, we're going to read about how God's people had somebody they were really anticipating. They were really looking forward to a visit from a king. So let's take a look together at Zechariah 9, 9. In Zechariah 9.9, God's word says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Advent comes, our word Advent, comes from a Latin word which means coming. As Christians, we celebrate the birth of Jesus every year, right? The coming of God incarnate every year on December 25th for Christmas. But the Advent season is that season that starts this Sunday, the fourth Sunday before Christmas. And it kicks off a season where we as Christians eagerly anticipate the coming of the Lord, which we not only get to look back on, but we also get to look forward to. And we do so with joy and thanksgiving. And Zechariah begins our passage this morning by encouraging his readers to rejoice and shout for joy. He encourages them to do so because their king is coming. It's something for them to be excited about. But when I looked at this verse this morning and I was preparing for this message, I started seeing a lot of questions in it. And the first question I saw is, why in the world would they be waiting for a king? Have you seen some of the kings they had in Israel? Why would they be waiting for a king? And the next question is, how long had they been waiting for a king? And then that made me ask, well, assuming that Jesus is the king we were, they were waiting for, how do we know that? How do we know Jesus was the king they were waiting for? And if it's going to be something to shout with joy about, he must have accomplished. Whoever the king was that was coming must have accomplished whatever it was that his purpose was. So my next question was, did the coming king accomplish what he came to accomplish? And finally, if that's so, what does it mean to us today that a king came thousands of years ago? So all these questions from this verse. So let's jump into it and take a look at all those questions. First one, why was the coming of the king something that God's people were looking for so expectantly? To answer this question, you need to know a bit of Israel's history and what it was that they were going through at the time that Zechariah penned his prophecy. It all began in the beginning, at the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve enjoyed bountiful blessings at the hand of God. They even got to spend the evenings with him in person. Can you imagine what that would be like? One day we'll know, but for now we can't. And despite all that, Adam chose to rebel against God. And as a result of his rebellion, Adam was sent away from the comfort of the garden and cast from God's presence. Death had entered creation. However, even in the process of disciplining Adam, God was gracious and he promised to provide a way for his people to return to him overcoming the sin of Adam and by proxy everybody who's ever been born and making a way for us to return to God's presence. God even gave Adam information about what that way would look like, what that Savior would look like. He gave him something to look forward to. And as Pastor Travis and his family read this morning, he gave mankind hope. And what he said was, 
that their coming Savior would be wounded by Satan, but that the, but the Savior would crush the head of the serpent. That he would, and that would symbolize the victory over sin and death, which was the enemy of both God and man. But in Genesis, God didn't tell them when it was going to occur. So history starts. And you fast forward 1,919 years. What's happened in that time? A lot. The world has witnessed the first murder. Man has been virtually wiped out based on their sin in a, in a universal flood. Job has demonstrated how to recognize the goodness of God in times of suffering. The pride of man that was on display at the Tower of Babel has resulted in a whole bunch of new languages and the people are scattered out all over the world. And about that time, God chose one man, Abram, whom he would later name Abraham, and he entered into a covenant with him in which God told Abraham that he was going to make his people a nation, a great nation. And more importantly, he told them, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to protect you. And over the next 200 years, as you read through the book of Genesis, you see how God protects that promise in miraculous ways. A number of times, over and over again, God preserves his promise to Abraham. And then about 200, or I'm sorry, about, I'm not, I'm, let me start over with that. God has promised to preserve his, his promise to Abraham. Abraham's family has continued. His line has continued all the way to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And Jacob leads Abraham's lineage, all 66 of them at this point, into Egypt because God has taken them to Egypt. They get to Egypt and they enjoy 275 years of prosperity. But it's not God's plan for them to stay there. God not only told Abraham that he was going to give him, make him a great nation, he also told him where they were going to be located. And Egypt was not that place. And over roughly the next 125 years, God prepared his people for the next phase of his plan to keep his promise to Abraham. And it was not a pleasant preparation. In that time, God prepared them by changing their status in Egypt. They went from welcome guests of the Pharaoh to slaves. And it was a difficult, difficult life. For over 400 years, God's people expanded from the 66 who initially entered Egypt to over 600,000 men, not counting women and children. So God's promise to Abraham that his seed would grow into a nation has taken root, and they've gone well. Despite the fact that God physically led them, when he led them out of Egypt, he did it physically, by day and night. They could see God's presence with them. And despite that, and despite the fact that he fed them and provided for them in miraculous ways, the people's lack of trust and faith in him caused the trip to the promised land to take 40 years. When the next generation finally entered the promised land, they had to spend the next seven years fighting the inhabitants of the place. Of course, God was with them and he helped them to overcome them. 
But it took seven years of war before they were able to actually divvy up the land and settle into it. And not long after that, God's people forgot the graciousness of their God, as Adam did, and acted on their own desires, and as a result, began suffering the penalties for violating their covenant with him. So over the next 879 years, and please bear with me because I'm trying to jam a lot into a short period of time. So over the next 879 years, the people initially, they started out dedicating themselves to God. But over time, they decided that trusting in God for their provision and protection wasn't working out. So they demanded a king. So God gave them a king. And then they saw, they built God an incredible temple. And then they got to see their nation split. And they got to see themselves in and out of exile over and over again. And finally, we get to where Zechariah is, all these years later, where he's pinning his prophecy. And the people are freshly returning to their land after 70 years of exile, based on the uh, order of the Persian king Cyrus. They're working on repairing the walls of the temple, and they're facing a great deal of adversity. So Zechariah is writing to provide encouragement about the future of Jerusalem and God's people based on God's promises. So over these years, as I mentioned, God's people had lost sight of what it meant to trust him, and they had installed a king. They lived under kings for 480 years. And while some of these kings were good and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, many of them failed to do so. And as a result of their failure, the people who the king was the representative of were punished time and time again through exile and other punishments. Based on their hundreds of years of experience, the people learned to equate a savior with a conquering king who would destroy their enemy or free them from the oppression of their enemy and provide for them. They believed a king would rule in such a way that the king would provide for their protection and their daily needs. And that's why they were waiting for a king. That's why they were anxiously waiting for somebody to come save them from their oppressors. Zechariah's prophecy clearly described the coming king, the one that people anxiously waited for as one who was righteous and would, who would bring salvation. Not the physical salvation they were looking for, and which could only be achieved, but rather he, he was bringing the spiritual salvation they were looking for, and that could only be achieved by overcoming sin and death. The king could provide them, a king that could provide them that kind of salvation was one that would be worthy of rejoicing about, as Zechariah was encouraging to do. So let's take a look at our second question. How long had the people been waiting for a king? Now in America today, it's possible that you live somewhere that maybe you don't want to live long term. Maybe you like green pastures and trees and rain every now and then and you find yourself living here, right? Maybe you really like the desert climate and you find yourself living somewhere like the Pacific Northwest where it doesn't stop raining and there's mildew everywhere. Maybe you find yourself living in a place where the mosquito is a state bird and you don't even dare go outside without first taking a bath in some sort of repellent, right? So maybe we're a little inconvenienced where we live. Right? Maybe it's not our favorite place. But you know what? None of us has known what it's like to live 
in, exi in exile. That's not me. None of us really knows what it's like to live in exile. None of us knows what it's like to be dragged out of your homeland across umpteen miles to a place where you're forced into slavery, your families very well may be separated, you are constantly humiliated by the people who have conquered you, and you're forced into slavery. You are, you are nobody in that society. None of us knows that. We've all lived much better than that. But the people Zechariah was writing to had. For 70 years, that had been the conditions they lived under. So you could certainly say that these people had been waiting for at least 70 years for a king, for a savior to come save them. And now, by the grace of God, they were getting to go home. Because of the length of this exile, it's very possible that a lot of the adults had lived their whole life under this. Some of them were born in this exile, and they lived there for the whole life. So it's not really ridiculous that they would be looking for someone, for some savior to come take them away from this and take them back to their homeland. But these weren't just regular people. These were God's people. And instead of looking for a king who was clever enough to come save them, who should they have been looking to? Their whole time, the whole time they were in exile, they should have been looking to God as their savior and to provide for their needs. But they weren't. How long had they been waiting for a king? Since Adam and Eve's rebellion. We've been waiting for a savior for over 4,030 years. From the time that sin entered through Adam to Zechariah's prophecy that was penned even 550 years prior, it was 4,030 years before the long-awaited king triumphantly entered Jerusalem. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew 21, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7 together. This is the passage that Joe read this morning, but I want to read it again, and there's a purpose for that. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. And you can read about that same account three more times in Mark 11, 1 through 7, Luke 19, 30 to 35, and John 12, 14 and 15. And I bring it up because it shows very clearly who the new king, the king they were waiting for was. And something that Joe read this morning that sparked a thought in my mind. When Jesus did this, you notice, and you could tell because when Joe read this morning, the disciples didn't even realize this was fulfilling a prophecy until after Christ died. Christ wasn't 
drawing attention to himself. He wasn't an imposter going, oh yeah, the scripture says this. Let me make sure my guys know it. And then telling them to go out and do something. Christ didn't need that. The scriptures testified to who he was. He was that king that they should have been reading for. And while these verses demonstrate for us that Jesus did in fact enter Jerusalem riding on a colt of a donkey, as Zechariah had prophesied, we have to ask, how do we know Jesus was the king Zechariah prophesied about? After all, Zechariah and his contemporaries Haggai and Malachi were the last of the Old Testament prophets. For 400 years after them, God went silent, and there were no more clues about what this coming king would look like or who he would be. These next two questions, how do we know Jesus was the king that Zechariah was prophesying about? And how do we know that he accomplished what he came to accomplish? Are critical questions for you sitting in this room. Because if Jesus was not who Zechariah prophesied for, about, and if he failed to accomplish what he came to accomplish, what does it mean to you? As believers, it means you're fools. It means you have placed your hope in the wrong place. It means you still stand before a, God, a righteous God, a holy God, covered in sin. This is not a light question, and we need to know the answer to it. Again, let's please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7, 12. It's one verse. In this verse, we see that God, through the prophet Nathan, promised David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. The scripture says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Nathan's prophecy was written so God's people would be able to recognize their coming king, the one that was going to set them free. And it's very clear that the Messiah was to come through the line of David. So when we look at this, one of the first things we need to do when we're trying to identify who the coming king was, was to see if he was in fact a descendant of David. And if you, have you ever wondered why in the Bible they list these long lineages? That's the reason. The Bible shows us in Matthew 1, 6 through 16, very clearly, it walks us through all the lineage of David, from David to Jesus, all 28 generations. It, tells, it shows you clearly Jesus' lineage. So Jesus meets that requirement. Malachi 5.2 tells us that one who is to be ruler in Israel would be born in Bethlehem. We also see that fulfilled in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. Now, those who were waiting for a king would likely, I mean, put yourself in their spot. If you're waiting for a king that's going to come save you, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a humble guy? Are you looking for that guy who just exudes confidence, right? This guy knows what he's doing. He's got an army behind him. He's a charismatic leader, and he's going to overcome our enemies and set us free. Which one are you looking for? 
If your eyes are on the world and on your troubles, you're probably looking for the more charismatic guy. But Zechariah is telling us, no, that's not the guy. The guy you're going to look for is going to be humble. He's not going to rule by his own might and wisdom. But he's going to rely on God the Father. The expected king is humble enough to submit himself to the will of the Father for the Father's glory. And in Jesus, we see that humble king riding in on a donkey to submit himself to the will of God in a way that would bring salvation to all of God's people. Jesus checks off every block of the prophecy as demonstrated for us in the Gospels. Doubtlessly, when you examine the prophetic proof, Jesus was the king Zechariah prophesied about. And understanding that Jesus, in fact, is the king that was foretold of by Zechariah, we find our hope and our joy in him. Knowing, as Zechariah said, that right, he's coming, he is righteous, and he has salvation. But that would only apply if he was successful in fulfilling the purpose of his coming. So the next question we have to answer is, did Jesus accomplish the purpose of his coming? And as I mentioned, this is another critical question. If Jesus failed in accomplishing the purpose for which he came, we are hopeless. So the pe people or the, the people Zechariah was writing to were expecting a king that would free them from the oppression they had suffered for over 70 years. What the people didn't realize that their, profession, their, their oppression was deeper than they knew. It wasn't just on a physical level. It applied to the very damnation of their souls. Because going back all the way to the beginning, with Adam in the garden, we all inherited a sin nature. We were all convicted of sin. We all stood before God as sinners, unrighteous and unworthy. We stood before a righteous and holy God whose requirement to stand in His presence, that guiltless, was perfect righteousness. And none of us were there. And if Jesus failed in why He came, that's how we would still stand. The same situation still applies today to those who don't know Christ. From, as Adam and Eve were cast from the garden, those who don't know Christ have been cast from the presence of God, and unless He provides a way, there would be no hope for any of us to enjoy His presence. In fact, the only thing we could look forward to is judgment. And to understand how true this is, you have to understand the significance of sin. We often minimize it, don't we? After all, what did Adam and Eve do, right? They ate a piece of fruit. No big deal, right? It's a huge deal. Because it's not the act you commit. It's your heart. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against their Creator. And every time you sin, no matter how small it is, you're making the same choice. And if you do not have... If you are not uh, repentant of that sin, and you do not have the blood of Christ covering that sin, you stand before Him guilty. 
You stand before him as one who has chosen to rebel against God. Sin, in fact, is a great offense to God. And because it's a great offense, it requires a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice to appease his wrath. As is clearly demonstrated in the Old Testament scripture, not just any sacrifice would do. God describes what's required as a sacrifice. It had to be a perfectly flawless animal. And that meant it was probably the most expensive animal or the most valuable animal in the owner's herd. But the sin was significant. The cost was significant. So the sacrifice had to be costly. The, fact, the sacrifice had to be of inestimable value and utter perfection. But even though the best of the herds were used in those sacrifices, even those could not provide actual atonement. The sacrifices had to be repeated again and again, showing that while God was gracious, His wrath was not satisfied by even the best that people had to offer. In truth, the sacrifices made by the people were shadows. They were signs that pointed to the one and only sacrifice that can actually take away our sin. These sacrifices were pointing to Jesus. When Jesus came, he addressed that deeper need as he made the sacrifice that all other sacrifices merely hinted at. Throughout his ministry, Jesus demonstrated that we are not able to placate the wrath of God by being good or being good enough. He demonstrated it through the wise or the, the young ruler, the rich young ruler that came to him. And the young ruler said, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus told him four different commandments that he had to keep. And the young ruler said, I've done it. I've done all that. And Jesus said, good, good start. Now take everything you have and give it to the poor. And what did the young ruler do? He chose hell. He just asked, how do I be saved? And Jesus tells him. And he says, nope, not going to do that. He chose hell. The same thing we would all choose if Christ wasn't our Savior. We can't placate God's wrath based on our own performance. The point of Jesus' coming was to make it possible for His people to be forgiven of their sins. To do so, He lived the perfect life the only man to ever meet God's standard of perfection. He is God in the flesh, showing that he is worthy, infinitely valuable, and able to be that once and for all sacrifice that perpetually atones for our sins. Please, don't just take my word for it. You can see Jesus' perfection attested to by God himself who declares Jesus to be his son with whom he is perfectly pleased. In Matthew 3.17, Luke 3.22, and Matthew 17.1-5. So I think I've established that Jesus did what was necessary to be that worthy sacrifice. But if he had stopped there, we'd be hopeless. 
Jesus didn't do that. Jesus humbly submitted to the will of his Father. So after qualifying to be that sacrifice, his final act of obedience to the Father was to shed his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of God's people, despite the great grief it caused him. He was killed on the cross and placed in a grave. However, this is where the hope comes in. He did not stay in that grave. Jesus rose from the dead. That is when the head of the serpent was crushed. That was when sin and death were destroyed. That is the source of our hope. The fact that the grave is empty confirms that Jesus successfully accomplished what he came here to do. Praise God. That is why Zechariah said, shout for joy. Because Jesus accomplished what he came to accomplish. He is the king Zechariah prophesied about. He accomplished what Zechariah told the people had to be done. And because he did, we stand before God perfectly righteous. The only way we can stand before God. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't care who you are in this room. One day, one of two things is going to happen. Jesus is going to return or you are going to die. It is going to happen. And in either situation, guess where you are going to find yourself? Standing face to face with a holy and righteous God. And you tell me, how do you want to find yourself standing? Are you bold enough to think that you can stand on your own? I hope not. I truly hope not. Because I know what is going to happen to you. If you are standing before God with the blood of Jesus covering your sins because you have understood what it is He's done for you, and you have repented. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Right? Ask my kids. I never live up to the man I stand up here and tell you to be every week. Never. But that doesn't make me condemned. Because I trust Christ and because I strive to live for Him every day, I know with confidence when I stand before Him, I will stand forgiven. That's what causes us to rejoice. And that's why Zechariah said, shout for joy. Jesus accomplished the purpose of his coming. So what does it mean to us that our Messiah has come? I kind of gave that part away a little bit already, didn't I? Right? If you're trusting in Jesus for the atonement of your sins, the fact that Jesus was successful should compel you to rejoice. Right? Week after week, we sit here and we hear Travis or Harold or myself share this good news with us, and we've heard it so often that some of you look like you're still trying to struggle to stay awake. Why? Did you hear what I just said? You have eternal hope. We should be rejoicing about that. We lose, it seems to almost lose its significance of this because we hear it all the time. 
There are people in this world who have no idea. They're happy where they are. Should we be rejoicing in what Christ did for us? Of course we should, right? We understand what God has done for us. And we are grateful for it. And because of what he's done for us, and because of the fact that we come together every week, we're a family, right? We worship together. We're here for one another. We support one another, right? And that is so awesome. But you know what? There's a whole world out there that doesn't know this. And shame on us if we don't try to do something about it. If you go out into the world rejoicing in what it is Christ did for you every day, guess what you're going to be? You're going to be different. And you're going to have an opportunity to share that gospel with someone who doesn't know him. Please don't miss that opportunity. And if you're sitting in this room today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you have not accepted him as your Savior, you got nothing to rejoice about. Life may be okay for you right now. You may be making a nice living, living in a nice home, lots of friends. Everything is just wonderful. Don't get comfortable. You may spend the rest of your life living that way, but I pray God will take it all away from you. It is my prayer for you that he will rip that out from under you and show you how much you need him. And it's my prayer that when that happens, your neck won't be so stiff that it gets snapped, but that you will be willing to hear the truth of the gospel. And you will be repentant, and you will know Christ as your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you will use it in a mighty way among, uh, for these, your people. Lord God, we fail constantly to serve you well. And I pray, Father, you will forgive us for those times that we fail. But I thank you, Father, that we can rejoice. I thank you that as your people, your blood-bought people, we have hope. We know where we will spend eternity. And Father God, I pray that you will help us, Lord, to live the way you've called us to live. Not to earn your favor, Lord, but to show you how grateful we are. Help us to live those perfect lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.